You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. August 22nd, 1991, St. Petersburg. For the first time since 1917, the red hammer and sickle flag does not fly over the city hall. There was a decree from Russian President Boris Yeltsin saying that the tricolor was now the official flag of the nation, the red flag, no longer valid. St. Petersburg wastes no time removing the old flag from the palace and raising the tricolor that was last on this building when Tsar Nicholas was alive. The question remained, what do we do with the old flag? Stomp on it. Burn it. Wait. Let's give it back to the communists. The crowd goes to the Communist Party of the Soviet Union headquarters in St. Petersburg, and a man knocks on the door. It opens. Take this. A hand is all they see coming out of the door. It takes the hammer and sickle flag, and then shuts the door. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Morning is wiser than the evening, as an old saying goes, and this is as true on August 21st, 1991 as any last night. They knew very little. Good evening. There is one thing that leads the Soviet Union tonight, chaos and confusion. It is close to daylight now in Moscow. Shots have been fired. At least three people have died outside the Russian parliament building where Boris Yeltsin is struggling to lead his reformers against the coup. Three were dead, more wounded, threats to the White House. There was definitely to be storm. There seems to be a great deal of fear, certainly among the reformers, Gerard, that when daylight hits, perhaps uh, that's when the Kremlin will strike in full force. You can't just say you were going to put your body on the line in front of an armored vehicle in defense of democracy. You were going to have to do that. At the Moscow News, the reporters had toasted the things that were like free speech. The Soviet crackdown seems to continue at this hour. Latvia now says the prime minister of Latvia was arrested not long ago when Red Army tanks stormed the ministry council and told Latvian defense troops to lay down their weapons or be killed. They assume it's all over. Perestroke is done. Pop a bottle of cognac right now because why not? They'll be arrested for their illegal newspaper distribution and then the men will come for their files, their sources. So much suffering to come. Yet, 
4 a.m. passes, and that was the latest consensus when the White House was to be stormed. 4.20 passes. Moscow's military commandant expresses regrets for the victims. 4.30 comes, no attack. Then 5 o'clock. The human shield that Yeltsin's supporters has built adds one more, what will be a final layer. Young cadets from the police academy agree to support Yeltsin and head towards the White House to join the defenders. Morning is wiser than the evening. Perhaps wiser about what isn't happening more than what is happening. People are still muddy on what happened last night. Perhaps uh, that's when the Kremlin will strike in full force. I do get that feeling. My personal view is if they were to have done that, they should have done that much earlier on. They should have done that uh, two or three hours ago. If there are snipers in the building around the Russian White House, well, no one has been shot by them yet. And if they have night vision goggles in an hour, hour and a half, that'll be of no use. After the ruckus at midnight, there's been no more visible tanks. But there's been lots of sounds. Indeed, rumors of a tank group that may have just halted outside Moscow, refusing to go in. And then there is talk of tanks that are in the city and actually leaving, perhaps. Rumors that Kryuchkov is just being ignored, that Yazov has committed suicide. The KGB units that were called into Moscow from other cities didn't even leave their desks. Rumors spread, but also the words, Don't be foolish. Don't leave. Stay in front of the White House. It could be a trick. Time to force the issue towards the Russian White House side. If the Supreme Soviet will not act, then the Russian Supreme Soviet will act. It will meet today, and it will demand the emergency committee must come to an end. And at 5.25 a.m., there's confirmation. New troops have stopped advancing on the city. Tanks start leaving Moscow. They see it, moving down Kalinin Prospect, burping, gurgling. Those tanks and APC units that are trapped in front of the U.S. Embassy, surrounded by protesters angry about the killings and wounded are, after negotiation with the Russian people's deputies, allowed to walk away. Rumors also come out. There's limousines leaving the Kremlin. In Foros, Crimea, Mikhail Gorbachev's security group actually in his house learned of the movement of troops from Moscow. As we had indicated in earlier episodes, his bodyguard unit, maybe 30, have decided the day before that it would now only operate on orders from them, and they took their positions in the bushes outside the house. It is not a moment, though, hearing this squawk talk that comforts the Gorbachevs in their accounts. Gorbachev's wife is having a very tough time. Later, it will be revealed that she suffered a minor stroke during the event. While they hear about troops leaving Moscow, they worry they're all coming here. What they couldn't get done in Moscow, they're going to get done in Foros to do them in. There was a plan to storm the White House. Operation Grom, it was called. Subordinates of the major committee of eight, the emergency committee, did the planning on orders from certain members of them. The KGB's alpha unit, you know, the, the best commandos, a kind of SWAT team, would have done the storming. 
All the veterans claimed later it would not have been difficult to clear the barriers and take the building. Those buses were no problem. They would use machine gun fire, grenades, demolitions, and yes, tanks. God knows what else, probably gas. And they would get in there. Oman would help, power troopers would help, tank companies would help Alpha. They'd never failed before. In Lithuania, they captured that TV tower and they killed citizens to do it who got in their way. This time, though, the unit is allegedly surveyed man by man. And each man says, no. Alexei, go? No. Vilimir? Yet. Igor? No. One by one, they say no. They will not kill their own people, these Russian people. They return from a staging area to barracks, and they put down their weapons in defiance of the stated ostensible authority. It's a good story. Makes for a hell of a movie. But according to Yegvania Albuts, in her State Within a State and others, There's no evidence this Alpha Unit story actually happened. It's much more likely that there was no such survey man by man. Probably never got to the staging area at all. It seems like like so many parts of the system, they sat on their hands. Yeah, we got orders, but wait for the real orders. Seemed to be a lot of that going on in Moscow on the 19th and 20th. Wait for the real orders. Now why the raid didn't happen? Doesn't matter to defenders of the White House, of course. It didn't happen, and it's good. At 11 a.m., the Russian Supreme Soviet meets on the political situation in RSFSR, obtaining as a result of a coup d'etat. It's a long title for a session, but essentially they're going to investigate everything that just happened. And the session is televised, live on USSR TV. Tanks outside presses and tanks outside news agencies are withdrawn. There's speculation as to where were those limousines going from the Kremlin, the tourists, Yeltsin's people jokes about them, the tourists in the limousine. Is it all the plotters or is it just a few? Where are they going? Well, they're heading to the airport. They could go to Iraq. Saddam Hussein, the leader of Iraq at that time, has had generously offered. Libya had supported the coup. He'd keep them. Or they could be in some KGB safe house. Somewhere in the world, unknown to any people. Russian security is sent to the airport to detain them. At noon, Moscow's mayor and the city Soviet declares that the curfew imposed was illegal and demands the troops leave the city. Soon after, the colonel of the Moscow region military district agrees on both counts. There is no point in enforcing the mandates of the emergency committee. At the same time, apparently unknown to Yeltsin, Members of the emergency committee try to get Yazov to overrule that. They're not successful. Yazov will resign his commission and decide to seek out the one person that could forgive him. Mikhail Gorbachev. In Ukraine, Leonid Kralchek gets meets with miners. 60% of them are ready for a strike. Kralchek's in a bit of political trouble because his in-betweening has been noticed by groups in Ukraine, particularly the pro-independence groups. Krawczyk defends himself. He kept the tanks out of Kiev, didn't he? Steps were taken to create a new government, maybe a birth of freedom for people who suffered seven decades, this is Seder talking, seven decades of mental violence. Yeltsin speaks again, condemns the coup attempt, 
and notes that there have been several attempts. This isn't the first time. This was just the time where they really executed their plans. KGB knew that the push was failing, the coup, and many of them were part of that foot-dragging, the non-arrest, and slow-moving, the following of orders, waiting for the order, the real order, then undermine the coup. Vodka shots and cigarettes and despair were not going on within the KG building in the Lubyanka Square. That almost never happened in the cool, calm, collected agency that knew everything, suddenly didn't know what was going on today or what was going to happen. And on the street, protesters are talking. We should attack the KGB office, like they did with the Stasi in East Germany. Let's seize those records. Let's find out what they've done. Let's find out who talked to them, who told on who. Let's find out all of their methods and who was involved and who should be prosecuted. A crowd gathers around this building. Crowds are as large as they had been in front of Yeltsin's White House. But there is something to note during this day. There's no order from Yeltsin's people to take this step, to storm the building. The Russian security team that's sent to intercept the limos leaving from the Kremlin, which they believe are these goof plotters, the Gang of Eight, They're delayed getting to the airport because of all the tank traffic. It's now discovered that the coup plotters, members of the emergency committee, are not going to some foreign country, some safe house. They're actually flying out to see the USSR president. Ah, we knew it, many said. That proves that Gorbachev knew about the plot. Maybe. Or it may prove, they think, that he's sympathetic to it. There are many of these takes. What will only be known later is that Defense Minister Yazov is the first to abandon the coup and say, It's over. It's useless. Let's go to Gorbachev and get him to forgive us and approve our actions. Yazov knows how prisoners live. He doesn't want to be one. So all of those rumors throughout the night of the 19th and the 20th that Yazov was a bit of the weak link, he didn't seem like one of the hardliners, was somewhat true. Kryuchkov, and this is important, does not want to join Yazov, does not want to go see Gorbachev. But he doesn't want Yazov to go without him. Yeah, that would be great. Then Yazov's going to throw Kryuchkov under the bus. Only then, when Yazov is insistent, does Kryuchkov get on the plane. For the first time in two days, Yevgenia Albuts, our journalist, whose book we referred to a few times in A State Within a State is something that you should get if you're interested in this topic. And really, if you're interested in Russia today, because it really delves into the KGB and its role in Soviet society. She's home. Her daughter says, Mama, did you beat a junta that quickly? There are three planes now racing to Foros, Crimea. 
So first, the plane with the coup plotters. And then the plane with the Russians, including Yeltsin's VP, Rustoy. They're also flying to Foros. They're a little bit late. The other plane's already taken off to be sure that they get their side of the story. And also, they want to arrest the coup plotters. And then there's a third plane. The Speaker of the Supreme Soviet. Allegedly neutral, but it's time will show, aware of the actions of the coup plotters and perhaps even more involved. All three of them go to Foros. This could be a funny cannonball run type comedy movie. Uh, who's going to get there first with these three sets of dueling Russian jets going to see the leader? Except that it's high stakes, it really is. And Yeltsin realizes that he sees it immediately, politician that it is, that he is. He's won the PR moment today, most likely, that's clear. They didn't storm the White House. He survived. Thank God he never hid in the U.S. Embassy or anything foolish like that. People are with him now. He sees that. But this situation's dangerous. If Gorbachev comes out and thanks the coup plotters for freeing him, and then refuses to see his group, he could win the military coup, he could win the public relations coup, but lose the political coup that, could, that is happening today, that's invisible to most. Gorbachev hasn't been popular since his prohibition days and since Sakharov and the, the, the economic situation, but he's a little more popular now. If Gorbachev comes out and Gorbachev starts reversing the decrees that Yeltsin made, if he questions what Yeltsin did during this time, some of that unity around him will disappear. This all crunched in Yeltsin's political calculator. Something else. There's a Russian proverb that says, you cannot keep two bears in a cave. Both Yeltsin and Gorbachev have some popular cred at the moment. At 3 p.m., the defense minister, the deputy defense minister, announces that the executive committee of the armed forces has ordered military forces out of the country to their bases. Everyone already knows it. In case there was any doubt, the head of USSR scientists speaks to Gorbachev and assesses that his health is fine. And now there are press conferences throughout Moscow in every little corner bureaucratic office where each one claims. Coup? What coup? We had no earthly idea. This office was not involved in the actions of the emergency committee. The first to do this is the head of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, oddly quiet for two days, now condemning the use of a legal seizure of power. Partia, Ozus Dayet Bush. Gee, thanks. It's a little late for that. The USSR Foreign Affairs Minister since he was ill the last few days and has only now recovered. Countless other agencies, the executive ministries, for instance, say, we were never summoned. Not everyone's going to be fooled by all of this, and particularly the Communist Party of the Soviet Union won't escape blame. There's too much evidence of their involvement. It's not forgotten that there are Russians dead from this and wounded from this. Not many, considering the gravity of communism coming down. Three dead, but Moscow City declares a time of mourning. This will color subsequent events. In Lithuania and Estonia, TV towers are cleared of military intrusion. Somewhere in Moscow, 
Yeneyev signs a decree dissolving the State Emergency Committee and declaring all of its decisions invalid. It couldn't matter less at this point. The Soviet General Prosecutor's Office has already initiated a criminal case. It's at 4.52 p.m. on the 21st when that group of Russian deputies and public figures led by the Russian Vice President Alexander Rutskoy, as well as Soviet Security Council members, Primakov and Bakatin, who are going to have roles in a future Yeltsin administration, flew to Gorbachev's dacha in Foros. They're much later than the coup plotters who had the advantage, but they're stocked. They're accompanied by 36 officers of the Russian Ministry of Internal Affairs armed with machine guns. Kryuchkov, still having a little bit of control, at least over some functions in the USSR, orders the airspace blocked near Foros. So this Russian delegation cannot land near Foros and will have to take hours to drive from the next closest Ukraine airport. It's eight minutes later when the delegation from the emergency committee, the plotters, arrives at the presidential dacha and speaks to their friend all along Gorbachev, or they send emissaries. Good thing, because the first thing those visitors get is guards popping out of the bushes pointing submachine guns in their faces. The emissaries make the request our bosses would like to see Gorbachev to work all of this out. The bodyguard says, that's up to Gorbachev. Gorbachev refuses to receive them. We insist, they say. The bodyguards come back. President Gorbachev indicates that if you restore his communications, he will consider the request of your bosses. They do that. Gorbachev's communications finally are restored. He's freely making phone calls, receiving information. Of course, he in turn says... I do not want to speak to anyone from your emergency committee, and I order your arrest. Oh, and once his communications are restored in terms of that airfield that Kryuchtov closed, he opens it up. And at 7.16 p.m., the plane of the Russian delegation, headed by Rutskoy, landed in Crimea. Rutskoy and his delegation go to see Gorbachev. According to eyewitnesses, the meeting was cordial and joyful. You almost forget the deep political divisions between Yeltsin's people and the Soviet authorities. There's a moment where Rutskoy, you know, who still harbors some feelings that the Gorbachevs were involved in this in some way. Maybe they at least knew about it. When he sees Gorbachev's wife, Raisha, and her face... And when she asks Rutskoy, are you here to arrest us? And he says, no, I'm here to liberate you. And that's the moment for Rutskoy where he definitely gets the impression, this is for real. They really thought they were going to be killed. We mentioned that there were three planes. So you had the planes with the Kupal plotters heading to Foros. Now you have the plane to with the Russian authorities heading to Foros, those supporting Yeltsin. Everybody wants to see this president that up until now had been a prisoner. There was a third plane, and Gorbachev receives Lukyanov, 
who is the speaker of the USSR Supreme Soviet, delayed the meeting of the Soviet till the 26th. Gorbachev meets with him just long enough to call him a traitor to his face and say he's aware of his double dealing. Then he sends him away. Around 10 p.m., the Russian prosecutor signed an arrest warrant for the emergency committee members. By early evening, the Soviet media reported the Committee of Eight had been disbanded. The parliament had formally reinstated Gorbachev as president, and the federal prosecutor had begun criminal proceedings against the coup plotters. Independent Russian TV was back on the air, satirizing state television for having been puppets of the hardline junta. Tens of thousands of people outside Boris Yeltsin's headquarters were elated. In their view, he had saved the day. Victoriously, they waved the Russian flag. And one speaker said, the black night of fear had become a new day of freedom. At one minute past midnight, Gorbachev, his family, and his assistants will fly to Moscow on Rutskoy's plane, on the Russian plane. The committee members were sent back on a different plane with one exception. Koryuchkov was forced to fly in the plane with Gorbachev and the Russians in handcuffs. Why bring him? It's the idea of the vice president of Russia, Rutskoy. They would definitely not be shot down with him on board. Stephen Kotkin sums it up nicely. Koryuchkov had been deeply involved in the bloody crackdown in Hungary in 1956 and the decade-long slaughterhouse of Afghanistan. But he'd always been a deputy. In the wee small hours, he was brought back from Crimea on the Soviet president's plane and arrested in Moscow. From prison, he begged for an audience with Gorbachev, writing, Mikhail Sergeyevich, what an enormous feeling of shame, heavy, crushing, and relentless, a permanent torment. When you were incommunicado, I thought, how rough for you. Always be propagandic. One coup plotter, Pugo, and the internal ministry head and the police commissioner, he and his wife commit suicide. Actually, it could be that Puga murdered his wife then himself. One of so many unanswered questions about these events. At 2 a.m., when Gorbachev arrives in Moscow's airport, television shows live footage of him walking down the air stairs, wearing his knitted sweater. Everyone's elated. They expect that Gorbachev will get to running things now, get to prosecuting. He'll make an appearance maybe at the new cradle of Soviet, perhaps world democracy at this moment in 1991. At least he'll go to the Kremlin to his office. But no, he goes to his dacha outside Moscow. It was early in the morning. David Sater writes, the Soviet Union was the first nation to be founded completely on the basis of atheism. But not without God, because the party endowed itself with all the attributes that God would have in any other religion. It depended on three things. A compliant working class, no ethnic conflicts, and the solidarity of the ruling elite. What couldn't be realized is that the collapse of propaganda and ideology under the free-speaking glasnost time, undermine all three of those pillars. The results of a poll conducted the second day of August, August 20th, is now released. 
The poll is not a street poll like the one released by Yeltsin the other day, but by the All-Union Center for the Study of Public Opinion in the Soviet Union of 4,567 people surveyed from different regions of the USSR. 20%, they say, supported the Emergency Committee. 62% considered it illegal. In Ukraine, the support for the Emergency Committee is just 14%. August 22nd, 1991, the defense minister of the USSR, Dmitry Yazov, is now a prisoner and is interrogated. The investigator asked him, You must understand that you are being interrogated in connection with your role in a crime that is defined as treason. Yazov says, I have a somewhat different view on what constitutes treason, and I don't want to hide this. Betrayal of the president, perhaps but I did not betray my people or my country. I like Gorbachev very much. But why did you decide to remove the president by unconstitutional means? I never thought it was necessary to remove the president from power. I am guilty of this crime to the extent that my participation in all of this made it possible. I could have prevented it all. I ought to have informed the president about all of this. I regret it all very much. This was, I believe, a very grave mistake. That sounds pretty naive, coming from an experienced statesman like you, the Minister of Defense. Well, discussions of the sorts have taken place before, under different circumstances. More than not, comrades Kryuchkov, Baklanov, and Bolden were present at these discussions. We would talk about the condition of the country, the disintegration of the party, the economy, all the foreign debt. Can you be specific about who was saying these things? Not really. They were just discussions. We tended to dwell on the fact that Gorbachev had been going on a lot of foreign tours. For example, what kind of speech did he make in London at the G7 meeting in July? We did not have a good idea about what he was saying there. So what decision did you come to? We had neither a plan nor a conspiracy. We just got together on a Saturday. Who called the meeting? Gryuchkov. Not necessarily to dwell too much on the rest of Yazov's. He he really gives a story that he didn't mean to send troops in, but did. Oh, because they thought maybe somebody was manipulating Gorbachev and they might have troops, so it's better to get the tanks there. All of these kinds of things. Essentially, it's blame it on Kryuchkov. In another room, Vladimir Kryuchkov, the former head of the KGB, now arrested, is being interrogated as well. Describe, please, the circumstances under which you decided to fly to the Crimea to see the president. We were planning to say it straight to Gorbachev that after his departure for a vacation, we had come to a conclusion the country is paralyzed. For example, take sugar beets. This is what he tells the interrogator. We did a coup d'etat because of sugar beets. Well, let me go on. Take sugar beets. It was a complete irresponsibility. All deliveries were off. If we did not take immediate measures then we would have an imminent collapse of the state. We wanted to inform him about this. You wanted him to announce his own resignation? We wanted him to delegate his duties to the vice president temporarily. According to Article 127, he could have done that. So it had nothing to do with illness or other, but Gorbachev simply refused to delegate his authority. Is that true? He said you may try, but nothing nothing will come of it. He also said that he was not feeling well. But today, of course, nobody can say that he is feeling well. It's a very strange way of talking in what he says. Like, 
He also said that he was not feeling well, but today, of course, nobody can say that he is feeling well. In other words, nobody knows whether he was sick or not, so we just assumed he was sick. We switched off the communications channel to maintain order in our terms and reinforce the security. There's not too much more to it. It was published in Der Spiegel, um, which is why we have access to it. He does make a point of saying something, though. You were saying now that the people are, were against us, but the people reacted ambiguously, Korichkov says. The first reaction resembled an expression of trust, emerging hopes. People did not respond to the calls to go on strike. Somewhere, four minds went on strike. One in the Komi Republic, the other in the Sverdlovsk region, but the country as a whole reacted far more calmly than anyone could have expected. The situation changed considerably the next day, and yet, in industry, things didn't go as far as strikes, just public rallies. Biggest rally was held in Leningrad. There's reasons for that. Moscow was much weaker. We should note that Kryuchkov will never really express regret for his actions on the 19th or 20th. There's still a crowd at the White House, but it's a more jovial crowd. There's a sense that there's a new country. There's going to be fireworks tonight. There's going to be more celebrations about what can be. The crowd in front of the Bianca Square, where the KGB building is, is larger. As we said, even larger than the one in front of the White House. It's easy to be an activist when there's no threat of tanks. Let's attack the KGB, many are saying, like they did in East Germany. For the first time since the 1920s, this agency that knows everything going on in the country has no idea what's going to happen next. That won't last long. Soon a solution for the crowd's anger is found because it's kind of clear we're not sure that the Russian authorities want people invading this building yet either. They will take down the statue in front of the KGB building, the statue of Felix Zerzinski the founder of the KGB, the Iron Felix statue, and a crane is found from the helpful U.S. Embassy, and down goes Felix. Everybody cheers. People are happy. There's this feeling that oppression has been lifted. But it's just a statue. And it was a very short-sighted victory. Yigveni Albats would say later, symbolism was defeated, but the building remained open and working. Journalists, a committee, including her and other people, would be allowed in later. The Russians are going to look at some of these files. They're going to reorganize. But after a year, Albert's own pass to the building will be revoked for unexplained reasons. There'll be a new head of the FSB who wants to go a little bit slower than the first person. Albert's is going to do an interview with a head of the FSB in 1994, three years after the coup. And she's going to go through, it's in her book, and you should read that, A State Within a State. But she goes through all the different directories, all the things that the KGB used to do. Wiretapping, counterintelligence, border, foreign intelligence. And pretty much the FSB, yep, we have an office for that. Yep, that's still under our control. Very little had changed. Gorbachev awakes and he's taken to the Kremlin. He talks to Bush, who is delighted to reestablish USSR, US cooperation, and to hear from his friend Gorbachev. 
He is himself delighted to get back to talking to the American president and other international folks. His capture stopped the signing of the Union Treaty, and now Gorbachev would very much like to resume that, to have a treaty between the Soviet Union and the various republics with a new understanding, and yes, acknowledging that they should have some more powers. Except now, after these coup events, there's a different tone that he senses. Russia's shaky, so is Ukraine. And if he can't get them to sign a union treaty with, who is left? But first, to the coup plotters, the arrests, and the interrogations. Gorbachev replaces the head of the KGB. He has to. The ringleader of the coup d'etat was the former head. With a, He replaces him with a deputy on the inside. The same with defense. The deputy minister of defense is moved up to replace Yazov. And so it is with Interior, a deputy from the ranks. He needs competence in this trying time. The defense minister he has now is an active coup plotter, though, who has not shown any regret. The minister, everyone knows, is using his new position at this very time to order everything shredded, anything that has to do in the ministry with the events of August 19th. Gorbachev is a little busy with the road ahead. He's prepared for some radical steps now. Nobody knows it, but he has a plan. He's decided he doesn't need the Communist Party anymore. Long ago, he expressed interest in having multi-party politics. That was probably going to be where the Soviet Union was going anywhere. We were going to have multiple parties. And even Kryuchkov at different times supported removing the article of the Constitution that made the Communist Party the only party in the land. That had gone in a couple of years from radical idea to something that, you know, kind of like legalizing drugs in America today, they're like, yeah, everyone's starting to talk about. Now, don't forget, that means there's going to be conservative right-wing parties and left-wing parties all together. Everybody's going to be in a mix. And for some, like a Kryuchkov, it might be that the Communist Party wasn't conservative enough. So all those things are going to happen. Gorbachev loves this idea. He secretly plans that at some point he's going to announce He's leaving the Communist Party and just be the head of state. Let politics settle who gets this job or that job. He's going to be the martyr. Gorbachev remains a socialist romantic. A little more bread, a little less brass. With my new friend Yeltsin, we can win communism this time. That's what he might be thinking. His step, leaving his post on the party side and just keeping the government post, if he did that in 1986... It would have been the most radical thing ever done in the country. In September and October 1991, it means very little. And realities are going to hit him hard just on August 22nd, when he gets his first visit from Boris Yeltsin into his office. Yeltsin, a day ago, might have been liquidated. He's a man in a hurry, and there's a lot to do. Mikhail Sergeyevich, Mr. President. Мой добрый друг. 
Yes, Boris. Thank you for saving me. Harusha Rabut. Yes, and thank you for your statement, Mr. Gorbachev, that the decrees that I ordered during the emergency have your support and confirmation. Konyeshna. This is true. Gorbachev issued a proclamation when he got back that all the things, all those decrees that Yeltsin was issuing between 19th and the 20th, that they should be considered to have the validity of the USSR and Gorbachev as well. One of those decrees, as you know, Mr. President, is that the control of state enterprises would go to Russian control. So these are the bulk of the business, because there are some private businesses, but most of the business of the Soviet Union, the things done, are done by the state enterprises. He wants to convert them from USSR to Russian control, which would be the entire economy. No, Gorbachev says, I, I had not heard that decree. Yes, that's because we never broadcasted it, but I did issue that decree. Gorbachev stalls. That would have to be approved by the Politburo, the Supreme Soviet. The Supreme Soviet is compromised, as you know. It cannot have the confidence of the people. A matter for later, Gorbachev says. Yeltsin had essentially, in this meeting, tried to pull a fast one. He didn't issue such a decree, and he knows it. He'll go for those enterprises again, but he moves on temporarily. And sir, you have appointed people to posts. Defense, interior, they are coup plotters. They were against you. Why would you appoint them? My sources are indicating they are destroying evidence right now as we speak. Gorbachev says, I will look into that, but I'm not sure I can undo it. You can fire them. I will look into the legal pretense later tonight. And here Yeltsin says, No. I'm not leaving your office until you fire them. In at least one account that I have read, uh, they say that this moment, August 22nd, this moment with Yeltsin and Gorbachev in the office, where, as a result of that statement, Gorbachev is going to pick up the phone, and do Yeltsin's bidding, essentially firing these people, is the end of the Soviet Union. I have trouble disagreeing. More events will come to be sure, uh, especially as over the next days, and certainly the next month, the credibility of the Communist Party and the USSR government that Gorbachev is leading will be reduced to very little as revelations of their role in the coup becomes more apparent. And it can't help but undermine Gorbachev, who's been leading these organizations. If you weren't involved directly, then it was your negligence, is kind of the assumption behind all of this. Gorbachev also doesn't do well at the funeral of the three fallen men in August who were who died in the with the barricades. He puts medals on mothers where Yeltsin honors their sons in a rousing speech. And following on that popularity from that occasion, he makes his pitch again for transferring the state businesses to Russian control. And Gorbachev's not able to resist it. 
Later, when Yeltsin proposes that Gorbachev ban the Communist Party from operating in the USSR, that's a step too far for Gorbachev. Remember, he's thinking about resigning from the Communist Party, but not banning other people who want to be in the Communist Party or ban it from operating. Martin Sixsmith talks about how this meeting, it's the Friday meeting, the 23rd of August, Friday, at the Russian parliament. Yeltsin invites Gorbachev, and Gorbachev, to hear Martin Sixsmith say it, you know, clearly thought that he could spend the rest of the meeting recounting his own adventures during the coup in boy's life style. He had come increasingly to adopt. This drew heckling and jeers from the radical deputies who wanted to turn the encounter into an occasion to grill Gorbachev. After repeated booing, Gorbachev turns to the hall of Russian deputies and asks, What do you want from me? I am telling you what I think. What more do you want? The radicals essentially, Sixsmith says, wanted blood. And when Gorbachev began to defend some of the ministers who he had promoted to positions of power, here's Sixsmith again. Gorbachev showed himself to be increasingly out of touch with the radical mood of parliament and of the Russian people. He defended the Supreme Soviet. He tried to argue, even though he knew Lukyanov, the head of the Supreme Soviet, had betrayed him, he tried to argue at least that he should be heard. He should be able to defend himself. This led to booing deputies. The aftermath of the push must not be turned into a campaign against the communists, he said. I cannot agree that the CPSU is a criminal party. It has reactionaries in it, and they must be dealt with. But I would never agree that we should throw out genuine, good communists. Some communists fought to rescue me in these days, while others must answer for their actions. Sensing the mood of the chamber, Yeltsin's hawk-like instincts told him it was time to move in for the kill. And that's when Yeltsin made the gesture which may have well sealed the fate of communism. And he walks up to the podium, live on TV, presents the paper to Gorbachev, and Gorbachev waves it away. Once again, just like the Gorbachev soccer of moment of 1989, Gorbachev looks bad on TV, additionally bad when Yeltsin walks over to his seat and then says, then I will sign my own decree banning the Communist Party from operating in Russia because of its complicity in the coup. And he signs it. Here's Martin Sixsmith. Saturday, 24th August, is the day on which the Russian Orthodox Church buries its dead, and the 24th was when the funeral in public honor of three young men killed on the barricades was to take place. Ilya Krichevsky was Jewish, but with persuasion from the Russian authorities and friends, his parents were convinced they should accept the break so that all three could have a funeral at once. Ilya's mother said her son had been home on the Tuesday evening listening to news of events in the city on Boris Yeltsin's shortwave radio station. He had simply put on his jacket and run out into the night. This collective funeral moved the whole nation. President Gorbachev, his voice choked with emotion, thanked the men whose sacrifice had contributed to his salvation. Gorbachev's tears were certainly 
genuine, as he told Kraut that the three had given everything in devotion, but he also must have realized that their devotion and that of the thousands that now packed into Menesnaya Square was not to him, but to Boris Yeltsin. Yeltsin respected the solemnness of the occasion, no rabble-rousing and no political campaigning. The emotional high point of his speech was his address to the parents of the dead. I appeal to you, parents of Volodya, of Dmitri, and Ilya, to forgive me. Prostiti minya. Forgive me, your president. Prostiti minya, vash president. That I was unable to save and protect your sons. There is no objective reason for Yeltsin to ask forgiveness, but asking forgiveness of each other, Martin Sixsmith writes, is what Russians do before taking communion, and Yeltsin was appealing to the deep religious and emotional ties which bind the Russian nation. A man who had nothing to answer for was accepting the burden of responsibility. The Soviet Union had been a system set up to pass blame around. And here is a guy accepting blame for something he didn't even do. Not really. Even though all three of these men responded to calls from him and from his vice president, Rutskoy. These are bad moments for Gorbachev, and it doesn't get much better when there's a referendum in Ukraine and Gorbachev has proposed a a new pact between the Soviet Union that he heads and the republics and really needs Ukraine on board. He needs Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. If he can get Ukraine and Belarus, perhaps Kazakhstan, you know, Russia might come along no matter what Yeltsin is, is doing. Voters in Ukraine overwhelmingly reject his plan and vote for independence. That really is the last pillar. Not that pen. Two hours ago, in a live statement, President Gorbachev gave gave a statement. Not that pen, Gorbachev says. He fusses about the right instrument to use to end his own position to resign. Two hours passed since he resigned his duties as a president of the Soviet Union. Not that pen. A softer pen would be better. Officially, it's filmed for a documentary called Yuka Departure. Uh, So the end of the Soviet Union is filmed. In fact, the filmmaker wants him to do it again, and Gorbachev refuses to play part of that. No, I'm only going to end the Soviet Union once. Dear co-citizens, countrymen, Due to the situation, Yeltsin now takes over. They form uh, the CIS, which is closer to a European Union than a Soviet Union. Gorbachev would have liked something stronger than what Yeltsin and the Republic leaders agree on. I always spoke for freedom, independence of the people, to the sovereignty of the republics. And I also spoke for the unity of our country and the wholeness of the, of the Union. 
Events flowed in a different way. Yeltsin orders new leadership, the KGB, like we said, but he won't disband Decision it. Due to principles. Totally puts it under Russian intelligence and security services, which have been active during the past three days. They have been protecting Yeltsin. Even though he's treated badly by the KGB, it appears, you know, he was the number one target of disinformation by intelligence services, embarrassment. Now that he's in control, most political examiners believe that Yeltsin looks at it and says, well, I need these people to stay in power. What do you do with a USSR, though, where everyone owns a piece of it, right? Like, I'm a citizen of the United States, but I don't think, like, I don't think I own a piece of it. That would just be a weird concept. But it's not like I, I, if we change the name, someone has to cut me a check, right? I don't know. But if you had told me since I was born that I owned this country, that I was working for the country, all my work was being put into the USSR, what happens when you get rid of it? Don't you owe me something? Yes. They are indeed owned a refund, and that's the consensus. And so every citizen within particular industries where they worked, if they own a piece of that factory and things like that, are given a voucher worth 10,000 rubles, their piece of the state. The law now is the market. Speculation business was once a crime in the USSR. Now it's legal. Now it's encouraged. A nation of bazaars and kiosks. It was already starting during perestroika, the reform part, perestroika. But now it's definitely everyone's selling something to someone, and the U.S. sees the opportunity. The Commerce Department sends special envoys to secure American investment and make sure people are doing business with our new friend Russia. There's speculation in these vouchers that people have too, and they quickly rise to 25,000 rubles. But prices are rising too, as market controls are lifted quickly. We might say rip off the band-aid. There, they said a lot, a, a single leap across the abyss. Don't waste time. Let's just do it. Yeltsin delegates his government. He has a series of revolving prime ministers. He seems to be a bit, a bit detached. Russia gets rid of its red flag, but not the hammer and sickle on the state seal and not the wheat of plenty on that seal. It's tied up in politics, and it remains there for a year. Yeltsin finally uses his presidential power to change it to a two-headed eagle. Enterprises once owned by the state become private enterprises, full of debt, loaning money to each other, making things sometimes for no one. The currency, the ruble, can be credited by banks of 14 new nations. There's not just one bank of Russia. As Rolling Stone magazine says, Russia's 14 ex-wives have identical copies of its credit card. It's not really funny, and neither is the inflation that results from it. It's crippling for Russia's pensioners and the poor in which this country, that is a lot of people. It is no exaggeration to say that Russia experiences something that America experienced in the 1930s, a Great Depression with the fall of the Soviet Union. And then when you hear people talk about it, and a lot of the people that are going to be the loudest about this are not the one living in the United States, but those that are still in Russia. And for instance, you hear Vladimir Putin make the comment that the end of the Soviet Union was the greatest catastrophe ever. That's not even an original statement. That's him clinging on to a popular political position. I'm not even sure he 
100% agrees. I don't think he wants to put the the union together with all the Central Asian republics and everything like that. There there might be some some certainly some aspects of it that he has already brought back. No, no, that's that's just a very common opinion because economically, especially for the older people, it was a devastating time. Those vouchers that we talked about worth 25,000 rubles soon are worth 2,000, then 200. And then if you could find somebody to take it, two, two rubles. Um, at that time, though, most regular old Russians don't own them. They sold them long ago for bread or cigarettes. Masha Gessen writes, a few people were getting rich very fast by selling timber or importing umbrellas, but most Russians felt poor. Goods were in stores, but they could afford so little. Two-thirds of St. Petersburg, for instance, was in poverty. Not so much for rent. Most people are able to keep their flat even during this Depression time. And that was the one thing, the one constant in post-Soviet life from the Soviet era. And I thank listener Larry, you know, who's Ukraine-based for talking to me recently and and, and reminding me of this point, that most people had their their flat, but that was it. Everything else was super expensive. And so in many cases, they were forced to kind of rent out people that had never rented. They just either lived alone in their flat or lived with uh, their family, now had to take a room and rent it in order to survive. You want more market share? In the new Russian capitalism, you can launch a new product, offer a better service, just throw a grenade into the window of your competitor. Your marketing problem is solved. Many private securities, though, gladly offered by former KGB or Moonlighting FSB, will offer their services to health companies. GDP in Russia is cut in half during the early Yeltsin years. Hundreds of billions. One estimate from the finance ministry is 250 billion is exported illegally from Russia. There is one positive development, the fall of the Soviet Union that almost everyone acknowledges. Russia gets really good phone service. Soviet Union had prevented citizens, discouraged citizens from even having telephones. It's difficult to get telephone books before perestroika. There weren't that many international telephone lines given the size of the company, and all of the wires were copper. Within five years, Yeltsin's telecommunication head is able to get fiberglass connections throughout Russia. This is important, very good timing, because it comes right at the time of the development of the World Wide Web. Vladimir Kryuchkov, the ringleader of the Gang of Eight, is released along with Yaneyev and the others in 1994. They're released by the Russian Duma over Yeltsin's objections. Kryushkov will essentially say he had no regrets. If he did it again, he would arrest more people. And he should have isolated Yeltsin right from the start. By the time we reach 2007, the time of Kryushkov's death, he's not that unpopular. Polls from the respected Levada Center will show if he tried a coup again this time, after what people have seen, there wouldn't be enough folks to fill the barricades. And just like that, it was time to deal with the new setup, the CIS, the international setup. There's a meeting in Budapest between the UK, the US, Russia, Ukraine, Belarus. The memorandum signed in Patria Hall in the Budapest Convention Center with US Ambassador Donald Blinken, among others, prohibited Russia, the UK, or the United States from threatening or using military force against republics, Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan except in self-defense, are otherwise in accordance with the Charter of the United Nations. 
Why Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan? Because there are certain nuclear sites in these countries. And to be clear, a lot of people say Ukraine had nuclear weapons, and they did. The physical nuclear weapons were there. The command and control was still in Moscow at the time we're talking about, but it's possible Ukraine could have usurped that, gotten around that. But um, between 1993 and 1996, all three of these republics decide to give up their nuclear weapons in exchange for a treaty of security that is backed, you know, it's not just Russia, because they may not trust that, but also the United States and UK. And I taught Ukrainian President uh, Leonid Kuchma into giving his weapons. Ukraine then had the third largest stash of nuclear weapons in the world. The head of Ukraine is very reluctant to sign at Budapest. He thinks he's giving up too much for too little. Russian Ambassador Blinken and President Clinton help convince him, really cajole him, that if he doesn't sign this, it's going to impact the U.S. and Ukrainian relations. I did it because we got an agreement between the U.K., the United States, and Russia to protect Ukraine's territorial integrity at all costs. And when I reminded Putin of this, before he went into Crimea back in 2014, he said, yeah, I know, but he said, you know, our Duma, their parliament, never ratified it. So it's not like a treaty. It's just Yeltsin's policy, and I disagree with it. We'd all make a deal where I'm going to pay you X money for your famous shoes or something. And I give you the money, and then you say, oh, I disagree with it. But you keep the money. That's what they did. The deal's adjusted, it's signed, and nuclear weapons are removed. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. 
You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I like Serhi Plocky uh, from Harvard on this. Ukraine found itself at the very center of the battle for full sovereignty of the republics, something that corresponded also at that time to the American vision of what should happen in the post-Soviet space. The United States, mostly for the reasons of the potential nuclear war between the republics, was uh, supporting until the very end uh, the existence of the Soviet Union and Mikhail Gorbachev as its president. Really, that support was dropped only a few days, maybe one week, before the Ukrainian referendum of December 1st, 1991, because it was clear that overwhelming majority of the Ukrainians would vote for independence. But once the United States withdraw its support from the Union, the model that on which the U.S. Uh, viewed through which the prism through which it viewed the region and the model on which it functioned was the sovereignty of those republics. The full sovereignty of the republics was never recognized by, by Yeltsin, as I already mentioned. Just to emphasize Plucky's point in that we're not all that different, there's a debate that goes on in American politics about the sovereignty of states all the time. Are we separate nations that are just kind of linked in an association or are we one country? And that's, you know, answered in the Civil War to some extent, but still something you see particularly in Internet debates. I, I mean, I could do four hours on that. I think it's a little stronger in the post-Soviet period, but you get the, the idea. The mother of Dmitry Komar, who was killed at the barricades defending Russian democracy in 1991, she says the Kremlin sent a wreath for the first few anniversaries, and then it stopped. Many Soviets have experienced hyperinflation, and all but a few have gone through savings, paying high prices, and selling assets. Yeltsin just seems to be delegating most power. Nancy Reese sociologist and researcher that we had discussed earlier in the podcast, interviewed a few people at this time. Says one Russian, I work for 40 years for this minimal pension, which is often two months late. It is insulting that someone who has worked only eight months gets as much as someone who worked 40 years. Another of Nancy Reese's people. The richest man in town is a black marketer, a young guy. In the 80s, he was kicked out of his apartment for speculating. Now, he's the richest businessman in town with cars, dacha, and his own bodyguards. Yet another. We honest people are still poor as ever. It's no wonder that nobody wants to live honestly anymore. If you live honestly, you starve. Joining this chorus of complaints is Yeltsin's former vice president, Rutskoy, the hero of the barricaded Russian White House, and... Yeltsin's ally, he now becomes his most prominent critic. He criticized Yeltsin's economic program as genocide, starving Russians. Russia's constitution named the president Yeltsin the highest official, but the Russian Duma is the highest organ of state power. What could possibly go wrong? 
opposition forces take over the Duma in elections and try and fail to impeach Boris Yeltsin. Now, Yeltsin conducts a referendum of the people, and they support him, and following the referendum questions say they want a new Duma, but it's not time for an election. After the win, Yeltsin calls for dissolving the Duma anyway. Now, Rutskoy calls Yeltsin a tyrant, leading a coup d'etat. It is less than two years. Together, they had fought a coup d'etat. Parliament members opposing Yeltsin are a mixture of the ultra-nationalists in the country, the Russian nationalism that had so strongly propelled Yeltsin's resistance, is now working against him to an extent. Some Democrats joining the anti-Yeltsin movement, and certainly the neo-communists, which were strong at this time. They have some military on their side and form some paramilitary groups. Where do they go? To the Russian White House, where the Duma meets, and they barricade in. And in an emergency meeting of the Constitutional Court, the judicial body found Yeltsin in the wrong. And shall be qualified as the basis for the impeachment of the President of the Russian Federation. That verdict is not surprising. The chief town in a special midnight session, the parliament voted to impeach Yeltsin. Choosing as the new president of Russia, Yeltsin's main political opponent, Alexander Rutskoy. A few minutes after midnight, Rutskoy went to the parliamentary chamber and took the oath of office. Russia tonight has two men claiming to be president. Yeltsin's going to send tanks. They know the script. They also know that TV was the secret to 1991. We need to get the TV tower. So a group marches to take the Moscow TV tower, huge and imposing, in the skyline of the city. Militia and Oman are waiting for them. They fire, and the paramilitary fires back. It's open shooting on Moscow streets. It's the first time that there has been such shooting back and forth since 1917, and 46 people die in the struggle. But parliament forces are beaten back and do not take the TV over. Yeltsin calls them revanchists, calls them fascists, say that they have red flags stained in blood. In Washington, President Clinton tried to play down the crisis, saying the Russians were trying to come to grips with what it means to be a democracy. He later phoned Yeltsin to express his support. Vice President Gore had this reaction. We're going to work with uh, the forces of democracy and uh, Boris Yeltsin in Russia to uh, uh, do uh, what we can to uh, uh, improve the uh, chances of a successful continuing transition to uh, a democracy and a free market. Now Yeltsin sends tanks to the Russian White House. Let me repeat that. He sends tanks to the Russian White House. It's a building he knows well. And perhaps he remembers what a general told him on August 20th, that a few shots to the upper floors would cascade and smoke everybody out. Plus, it'll kill any snipers, his generals tell him. Good. He orders it done. The building that made his political rise is now on fire, all covered on international TV throughout the nervous world. People in America, including this author, watch nervously, hoping and praying that our ally Yeltsin will prevail. In Russia, it is a far more ambiguous subject. 
After the tank assault, the Russian White House is stormed, floor by floor, by the very alpha units that would not storm it in 1991 to drive Yeltsin out. And it's all over in a few hours. There is a desperate call made to the military to rise up against Yeltsin, to bomb the Kremlin. That does not happen. Yeltsin is elected and re-elected in 1996 with the help of some of President Clinton's team even. He will continue to delegate economics to various prime ministers. He'll continue to battle in Chechnya. The economy will remain to be the Wild West in the 90s. And crime is always high. Millions leave Russia. Others pine for the days of the Soviet Union. In a small office in New York City, a salesperson promotes the new atlas that his company has published. The facts on file atlas of the Soviet Union is now the Atlas of Russia and the CIS. Every library has to buy one. Oh, goody. We get to replace all the atlases in those libraries. Good for business for young Bruce Carlson, a badly shaven young man in garbadine pants. He types orders into a green screen with a white blinking cursor. He wonders, is there a publisher softball game in Central Park tonight? Does Blockhead still have $5 taco and soda specials? Like most Americans, Carlson's just glad the world is safe and that some guy with the same hair color as Bill Clinton is in charge of things in that country far away. Narcissism is now like a hunted beast. The blows dealt by the Red Army and the mighty onslaught of the Anglo-American troops amazed the entire world with their impetuosity. In a sea of problems, there's a small refuge of national unity. Blame your problems on the Americans. A popular miniseries, aired in the early 1970s, is now re-aired. 17 Moments of Spring, it's called, which shows that during World War II, of course, the Americans were ready to sell out Russia to the Nazis and negotiate with them separately for their own peace. It's not true, but the fiction is somewhat accepted truth. Who stops the imperialist fascist league that never happened? Why, a daring KGB agent who infiltrates the Nazis to block the plan. If only we had a hero like that running things. Maybe a few people think. Well, a fellow that had watched that movie in the past and helped to inspire him for his chosen career is now moving up the rings of government, from head of the FSB to eventually becoming prime minister. It's New Year's Day 2000, the famous day of Y2K and the holiday in Russia, where Yeltsin announces well ahead of elections that he will step down, and his newly appointed prime minister, Vladimir Putin, will take control of the country. Who is he? Few knew Putin, but every vegetable has its time. The Democratic activists in St. Petersburg knew him as that man in the office building who did nothing but seemed to control everything. Clinton apparently visits Putin, tells the press he's capable, but he doesn't like him. The feeling is mutual in some reports. Clinton hugs Yeltsin, 
But per Frontline's reporting, he tells him, are you sure about this man, Boris? Are you sure about him? Are you sure in your heart? He taps, touches Yeltsin's heart. A Clintonian, an American thing to do, but a Russian knows. Those type of deals are long since cemented. Yeltsin had to pick him. The alternative was much worse. The Fatherland Party was coming after him and his family hard, and if brought to power, he'd be prosecuted, no doubt. Yeltsin had to know what Putin did for the former mayor of St. Petersburg that he worked for, Anatoly Subchak. He was under investigation for corruption, missing funds. But all of a sudden, the charges disappeared when some negative stories were found out about the prosecutor. The apartment bombings changed everything. A sudden wave of explosions is in Russia happens. Nearly 300 people die. It's blamed on Chechen terrorists. That's still the official story for what we know. The explosions, as David Sater, other reporters have pointed out, were made from materials only in Russia under high security. There was an enormous amount of material in the Russian newspaper Novaya Gazeta, uh, which pointed to the possibility and, in fact, the likelihood that the authorities themselves blew up those buildings. Yeltsin's administration had maybe a 2% approval. But after this event and a war declared in Chechnya pursued aggressively, his new prime minister Putin becomes popular. And it's time to run for president. People don't know who Putin is, but TV ads will fill in the story. One of Putin's hardest campaigners is his old boss, Anatoly Subchek. That makes sense now, doesn't it? He has a great campaign slogan. Putin, Subchek says, will be the new Stalin. He means it as a compliment in every way. Victory's easy. Putin beats the communist candidate 53 to 30% and a social liberal party 53 to 5%. His first act is to grant immunity to Boris Yeltsin. There is great ceremony to his inauguration, not seen in the Yeltsin inaugurations. He declares, Russia is back. Takes him less than a year to assume emergency powers, and a few years to redraw the relationship with the United States. Russia is on ice, American businessmen say. He seeks advice on matters of state, and often brings in his friend and former boss, Vladimir Kryuchkov up until his death in 2007. But it's no safe place to be a reporter. Prominent journalist critics are killed. The Committee to Protect Journalists notes 82 journalists and media workers were killed in Russia between 1992 and 2023. These include motives that are unconfirmed. When it comes to motives that are confirmed and journalists that were indeed murdered, 38 journalists have been killed in Russia between 1992-2019. Journalist Yelena Kostyuchenko is having a first look at what used to be the office of Anna Politkovskaya, her colleague, shown here in archive footage. Now it's a museum in her honor. On October 7, 2006, she was shot four times at her Moscow apartment. Those who carried out the killing were later sentenced in court, but those who ordered it were never held accountable. 
Two years before her death, Politkovskaya was poisoned on her way to cover a crisis, a hostage crisis, in the town of Beslan. After drinking tea on a flight, she became seriously ill and was hospitalized. But her toxin was never identified because the medical staff was instructed to destroy her blood tests. In 2012, a retired police lieutenant colonel was sentenced to 11 years in prison on charges that he was an accomplice in the plot. Journalist David Sater was kicked out of Russia for being undesirable in 1982. He's kicked out again in 2013. His insistence on asking questions about the Ryazin Air Apartment buildings did not help his case. You had to be deaf, dumb, and blind not to see what was going on. And in particular, you had to be willfully ignorant if you didn't see the implications of the Ryazan incident in which three FSB agents were arrested for putting a fifth bomb in a building, even though the bomb didn't go off, it was a live bomb. What was it doing in the basement of an apartment building? His request for more documentation from either the United States or Russia fell on deaf ears. The mother of Dmitry Komar, killed at the barricades, regrets what her son did. The family was given a pension, but with ruble devaluations, it became $8 a month never increased. This isn't the Russia that Dmitry Komar died for, his mother said. The so-called struggle for freedom and independence. She lives, she says, in a country defined by corruption, banditry, lawlessness, and criminality. The same with Gennady Veratilny, who was shot in the shoulder trying to save Komar. He became far more ambiguous about what he did on the barricades. Yeltsin was a guru. The people were naive. We didn't know what was what, Veratilny said. We didn't know that instead of freedom and democracy, we would end up with wild capitalism. Power changed hands from one bunch of crooks to another. Nancy Reese, the sociologist we talked about, reported that barricade defenders tended to think that their democracy work was done when they lifted the medal and stood in front of the tracks. That their entire contribution was limited to their time on the White House. When she asked people about it, this is what they would talk about. When her interviewers would query as to what they've done to foster democracy in Russia, many, if not all of them, would keep referring back to that moment in 1991 and their time on the barricades. Twenty years later, as we referenced before in a poll of the Independent Levada Center, just 12% of people would have risen to stop the emergency committee again if they had the chance to do it. Yet that's not true of everyone. Tank standing companion and Yeltsin supporter Berbulis, Gennady Berbulis, former first deputy prime minister of Russia. The sad thing is that we've lost the greatest achievement of the first period of the Yeltsin era. We've lost real freedom of the media and real freedom of speech. 30 years later, we're still stuck in the post-imperial mindset. Berbulis said. We wanted Russia's burgeoning freedom to remain its core value and human rights to be the strategic goal. The empire is gone, but the imperial mindset remains, he said. But I'll never forget the barricades. Even today, I should preserve that noble, romantic view of life, he said. Without it, each of us would lack the dignity that gives life meaning. 
And I would ask that question. When I listened to Berbulis' words, I would ask the question, should it apply only to Russia? Should we all preserve that noble, romantic view of what democracy is? Mikhail Gorbachev outlives all of the coup plotters, as well as Yeltsin. He dies in 2022, decades after the August 1991 coup. He identifies his mistake, he thinks. He should have been less, quote, democratic with Yeltsin. I should have exiled him to ambassador of some small British colony. He also says, I should have taken 10% out of the budget and given more meat to the people. And more bread. As a solution, it's positively Soviet. This is part six. And it is the final of the narrative portion of our podcast series. Thank you for listening. There will be one more when I'm calling a USSR scrapbook where I've already gotten some feedback from listeners and there's also just so much that just didn't fit into the narrative structure of the episodes and so I want to talk about it. You know, I definitely want to talk about boiler room rebellions. I want to talk about Lithuania, Soviet versus post-Soviet and I have more comments from people who lived in the Soviet Union to talk about. Hunger is not our aunt. Let's get busy. If you like this podcast, please tell someone about it, could you? Could you? If you you know someone that would like this six-part series, please tell someone about it or make a note on social media or or, um, anywhere else. Uh, For those of you that are new to the podcast... I've done this podcast since 2006, and whether you're a new listener or one that's been with me throughout, I want to thank you for listening. 